This episode is brought to you by Vin Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at vinitalyinternational.com. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. In today's episode, we welcome Elizabeth Schneider, host of Wine for Normal People, one of the world's top-rated wine podcasts. Elizabeth is also an author, speaker, teacher, and today, customer advocate, as we drop all filters and dive into marketing, communications, and how the wine world needs to up our game. This one comes with an explicit language warning. Now, let's get into it. Hey, Elizabeth. This is funny that we're actually recording this since we talk all the time. I'm going to start us off with a tiny little story. I actually met you at Wine to Wine four years ago. Three years ago. Three years ago, but it does feel like 400 years ago. Got it. It It feels like a lifetime. 2019. Okay. Yeah, no, it feels a lot longer than that. And I had been given one instruction that year going to Wine to Wine from my husband, which was, Elizabeth Schneider speaking. Can you please meet her? Because he is a fan. Like he is an absolute died in the wool fan of wine for normal people. Um, he's found wine brands that he's loved. I, I've made friends in Napa because you know them and they love you. I, and I'm thinking about the team at Acorn, right? Who are just the most fabulous Sonoma, people. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. Sonoma. Yeah. There, there's so much good that has come out of my husband being a fanboy. <laughs> of the podcast. But I actually kind of want to use that as the basis for some of my questions for you today, because you sit in this amazing space between the audience and our consumers and trade and our producers. And I think that that gives you some insights, especially around business communication relating to the audience that we could all use to hear. One of the things that I always remark upon is that you have innumerable channels. You have a podcast with just under 500 episodes. Is that correct? It's a little over 400. So it's 400. It'll be 412 this week. 412 episodes. You have a YouTube channel. You are posting to Instagram reels as well as your static post. You have a website. You do corporate classes, you do private classes, you do corporate events, you do private events, you do fan events, you have a book, a best-selling book. It's not best-selling. It's not best-selling. It is in the wine world. Well, I don't really know, you know, we can talk about the, the fact that I have absolutely no idea how popular or well the book has done. All I can tell you is that I'm just happy that people have enjoyed it and that um, my directive to my PR team when the book launched, because I it was published through 
a regular publisher, um, not like a wine publisher, was please don't send it to anybody in the wine world. And they did. Why was that? Why? Um, you know, I lay outside of the industry in many ways. And I kind of did this with an eye on the fact that I thought the industry really, I, I, and they still do, they just don't care about consumers. So my focus is 100% on wine drinkers and wine lovers. And some of those people happen to be in the industry and use what I do for their work. And I love that. I, at first, I, I'm not going to lie. Like at first I was kind of like, oh, I don't really want to have this be part of people's, you know, part of the industry. But I, this was all for, for people who love wine. So if you happen to love wine and you're in the industry, great. Why not? Right. But I don't need the, I don't need the nonsense that goes along with, you know, people who they just love to tear each other down in this industry. And it really kills me. And I just, that's not what I'm about. So I, I didn't want to be part of that. I had already had some experiences, which I'm happy to talk about with like, you know, some of the establishment players just saying terrible things about the show and saying, you know, being so holier than thou about what I do and how I talk. And it's like, you know, I felt like I was back at Wesleyan. Well, I, I actually do want to get into some of those issues around the, the industry. But before we do that, what I'm uh, just clarify the wine podcast started in 2012. Is that correct? 2011. Um, it was 2011. January 2011. And that was it was crazy because so the way that started is, again, it's so unorthodox, like it has nothing to do with wine, very tangentially to do with wine. So there's this guy, Rick Breslin, nicest guy in the entire world, runs the Hello Vino app, which is really now, I, I think a little bit, he does more on the data and business side because he had like a lot of people sign up and he's, he's a tech guy. And I was writing content for Hello Vino, the app at the time. And he, his wife was like somebody I'd worked with. I mean, it was just, I had dinner with him and my husband and his wife one night and in Sonoma. And he said, I was trying to tell him like what I was trying to do. I, I wanted to have, I wanted to reach more people. I was like, maybe I want a TV show or something, something to really like teach people about wine in a way that they would like it and get away from the way that people talk about wine and talk about it differently. And he's like, let's start a podcast. And I was like, what, what are you even talking about? And he was like, let's start a podcast. So he explained it to me. He sent me a mic. He did the editing on the first couple times. I remember sitting with a blanket over my head because it was too echoey. I mean, it's hilarious. And then by the end of the year, he got too busy to do the podcast. I pulled my husband in, who is, you know him. He's kind of like an entertaining guy. And the sea ice. Um, yeah, yeah. And the sea ice. He's an entertaining guy. He likes, to, he likes to ham it up a little bit. He has dad humor, as my kids say. And then... By the end of 2011, I started getting, of course, this is the story of my life. I started getting emails from people who I went to business school with who were like, hey, did you know you won iTunes new art, best new arts podcast for 2011? I was like, what? How come nobody sent that to me? Like nobody from iTunes sent that to me, but it was very cool. So, yeah. So well. how have you seen, before we kind of get into the, the customers and some issues with the industry... How have you seen the change in content or the change in communication going back 11 years with the proliferation of dozens of different social media channels, some which have succeeded, uh, others which have fallen by the wayside? And now, of course, in the past two years, 
everybody and, you know, his aunt rolling out a podcast. Do you feel like that it has created a richer content space or do you feel like that it's really watered down the the environment? No, I think that this is just part of the trend. So podcasting is very unique and I'll, I'll talk about, I can talk a blue streak about that. But what I'll say is when I started, I started a blog in 2009, because if you remember, blogs were the big thing. Everyone had a blog. There were a million blogs. I had a blog. And that was the thing. And everyone started it. But it became quickly evident. A couple of a couple things became evident. Not quickly. I guess it took a few years. And the same exact thing is going to happen with podcasting. But I think it's going to be quicker than it was with blogs. One, it's a lot of work to maintain a blog. And people get busy and there's not a lot of time to do that. And two, the idea that you're going to get free stuff all the time and, and promote it and stuff like that, after a while, it loses its luster and then people are less interested and then people stop selling, sending you things. And, you know, the other thing is only the best rise to the top. And that is who is going to continue to be at the top, right? So the only, only, I mean, think about what's in the blog world. My friend, Tom Work, who runs work at or the fermentation blog. I mean, what's left? He writes about this all the time. There's no bloggers left. I mean, they have the wine bloggers conference. They changed it to the wine media conference in the US because they can't, there aren't any bloggers anymore. There's nobody really doing that. So and yet blogging in other industries is making a comeback. There's a huge shift back toward owning your own content. I mean, we can talk about wine and wine media and whether or not there's actually, in your opinion, what the future of wine communication looks like if you want. You know, is it, yeah, is it going the way of the dodo? Is it turning into small sound bites? Is it long form YouTube content? Is it Substack? I don't know. I I really don't know. I wish that I had more kind of insight into that. What I can tell you is that there is an interest in in wine obviously, but it is the industry has is changing. I think we're we're going to see a contraction of what's going on. Like there's not and I don't even understand. I feel like Somebody needs to go knock on the door of the people that run Silicon Valley Bank and drag them into a marketing class because I don't understand how every year they're like, oh my God, wine, it's a disaster. Everything's horrible. All these industry publications. And I'm like, you guys are, I, I'm, I'm sorry. This is just like such bullshit. Look at the data in a mature market stuff plateaus. If you're not going to look understand how market dynamics work, what do you think that a mature market is going to keep growing forever? That is not how market dynamics work. Okay? So look at freaking like peanuts, okay? Like maybe every now and then there's a thing at planters where they do honey roasted and they get a little growth off of it. But I have worked in marketing. I have worked I ha I have a, a an MBA I worked for freaking Advil. I can tell you what a mature market looks like. Growth does not come in 10% increments a year. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't even work in 1% increments a year. 
it levels out, it becomes stable. Sometimes it declines a little bit. That does not mean that people are stopping consumption of wine. And I think that this is like, it drives me crazy. So there's, there's, hold on, hold on. Let me jump in. Let me jump in on this. Please. Advil. Advil spends money to market Advil. Yes, to stay relevant so they can hang on to their own market share, right? That they have. Okay. You gotta maintain. So you are given the space that you sit in, you have a very unique insight into who our consumers are, how we're talking to them, what they're feeding back to you. I mean, you have a private Patreon community that you communicate with all the time. Can you tell us? what they're asking for from the wine industry. How can we do better? Well, I think, honestly, you're not going to like what I have to say, but there are way too many wine brands. There are too many SKUs and there is too much focus on the story and not enough focus on quality. I mean, I have to say that when I worked for the big hulking winery, which whose name I will not say because I don't want to get sued. I mean, Oh, it was all about spending money on marketing and not about quality. How stupid do wine brands think people are? I'm not going to answer that. You can answer that for me. That after a few years, you're going to degrade the quality and you think people aren't going to notice? No. Do you, think that, do you think that, that that particular story, though, bifurcates between our large-scale commercial brands and independent brands? Do you think that there's a difference in interest in the story and the love affair and the passion versus the broad market spend? Nobody cares if if the wine tastes like shit, no one is going to buy it. Okay. Except, you know, maybe I guess, you know, you've got, but there's a brands. lot of, there's a lot of wine out there that too much fabulous. And yet they still, and yet they still have trouble selling. Yeah. I mean, some of that has to do with the distribution system. I mean, if we're going to talk about the largest market in the world is the United States, whether people like to hear that or not. Many people do not like when I say that, but it's true. The United States has more people, right, to drink the wine. So even if only a small sliver of what we drink is, you know, a small sliver of the population drinks wine, it's still enough to make a lot lot of money here. So if we talk about the U.S. or the U.K., you know, what, how did, how do you get your wine out there? I mean, one of the major tenets of marketing is place, right? Is distribution. And if you cannot get distribution of your wines, no matter how good they are, you'll never be able to sell them. I mean, this is one of the huge challenges I have with when I have guests on the podcast. I don't let people come on the show if their wines aren't distributed. Doesn't mean that they're not great, but I can't send them I can't send people out, have them listen to this person talk about the terroir of their place, about all of the things that are going on with their winery, and then they can't get the wines. So again, there's a basic you know, thing. And as consolidation has happened, especially in the United States, and you know, um, it, it, all of these changes that have gone on, smaller wineries don't even have an opportunity anymore to get on shelves. I mean, it's impossible. Well, hold on. So, so taking the broad market and setting it aside just for the, the purpose of, of this argument, do you think that in a D to C space that that storytelling matters? It does, except how is anyone going to find you unless, 
I mean, that's the thing is like you have to get out in front of people. D to C only happens if someone comes and visits you. Right. Right. Or they can get your wine somewhere. Again, it's all about distribution, because if you can't get wine in people's mouths, they are never going to find out about you. That's that's the basic. Right. Here. Here's the thing that I'm hearing as a marketer, and and it's a little different from what you're saying. So I just want to kind of feed this back. Um, It sounds to me like there's a real mismatch between expectations and in some cases, early business practices. So there's a, we, we exist in an industry that is very romanticized, how beautiful it is that someone's gone out, they've made their millions in tech. They're going to go buy a winery. They're going to sell their pants off. You know, they're just, the world is going to love their wine. They're going to get written up and, you know, pick your favorite magazine and life is going to be good. When we all know anybody who's worked in wine, that unless you are Kylie Minogue, this is not actually how new brands get started. So taking that MBA and all of your experience with these wine brands, are we coming back down to early business practices and realistic expectation and strategies? Like, where do we start to overcome this? If, if you and I are living in our bubble and we're saying, right, here's the way that wine changes this. Where do we begin? Well, I mean, there, there's just, I, I mean, I can't even, yes, you need to have a business plan, right? You can't just make wine and expect everybody's going to love it. You have to have a business plan. And the biggest part of that business plan is how are you going to get the wine to the people who you want to drink it? And or how many people can you get it to? And not everybody we're needs to drink your another, wine if you're a small winery. Yeah. That's the other thing that just boggles the mind is that there needs to be some sort of... All right, let me give you this example. When I wrote the proposal for my book, one section of a book proposal for when you write your book someday, Polly, is that you have to come up with the target market. This is a basic business plan. You have to come up with who could potentially buy your book. What does the person look like? What's their profile? Who do you think they are? And by the way, and you and I have had this conversation a hundred times and I'm going to have it a hundred more. And I know you disagree with me somewhat. Stop with the demographic bullshit. It doesn't work. Demographics and wine. Look, after you're past 21, maybe 25, 26, it's not working. That is not the way that wine is sold. It's based on, do you connect with that kind of customer? And that customer is of all different ages. There are different people in the world. So I'm the first one to say, I think demographics are dead. I don't actually believe in relying on old school demographics. I do find that psychographics are very effective in identifying our wine brands. And one thing that we've talked a lot about is that, you know, there's all this bullshit about, the boomers and the Gen X, because we do exist in the millennials and now the Gen Z. Wait, we do? Well, actually, I know, right? We're not really as hidden. Um, There's so much research that shows that you can have a boomer who is an early adopter, is tech confident, who is living in exactly the same access space as a 32-year-old. 25-year-old, yes. 25-year-old, especially when you're looking at a balance of economics, if you've got a boomer who's headed into retirement and you've got an up-and-coming, you know, potential Gen Z, early millennial consumer, 
Well, actually, we might be speaking very similar messaging to them. Uh, maybe maybe the spaces that we get to them are a little bit different. But uh, so, I okay, let's go here. Let's talk about this. First thing, I think that in wine, my experience has been that we like to paint with a very broad brush. So whether that is for our customer persona, our market, whereas you have with your patrons and of course with the podcast audience, I mean, it, it I, I've seen the numbers, even though I've been told not to talk about them here. I just um, don't want to know. And it is, I don't look at the numbers. Well, the global numbers are incredible and they really are global numbers. So you're receiving feedback both within the community and from your podcast listeners from around the world. Would you say that there are any stark differences between, let's take the American consumer and the the UK, Antipodean, South African, we can kind of bundle them together versus the ah. old world European versus maybe not. Okay. okay. Well, no, Break it we, down can't. For me. we can't. The UK consumer is very unique. And um, I, I personally really love my UK listeners. I will say, and I love, I mean, I love everybody, but I love some of the questions that they ask sometimes are just like, wow. I mean, you like, I don't know how, so. how they find me, but they're, they're really, some of the stuff is like, geez, that is, I mean, it's, it's stuff that I've thought about before. I've got to research a lot of times for, for some of those UK customers. I think that Wait, because pause. they on, are seeking on, me on. out. Okay. Now this is what's interesting because you say, Wine knowledge, non-snobby wine knowledge. That's really the space that you've always wanted to live in. No jargon, uh, no yes, BS. Right. Communi wine communication, I would say, right? Like But you do taking, say non-snobby. Like that. Yeah. That, what, this is what this is what I would say. Okay. And I will I will bring it back in like sort of a personal context. The one thread throughout my life since I was like five years old, I cannot stand bullshit. And I cannot stand the the fancy, flowery, whatever. Just tell me, this is such a New Yorker thing. Tell me what I need to know and make it easy. If it can be a little funny, that would be awesome because it'll be more memorable. But just give me the information and give me some context around it so I can remember it. And then we're good. So, so that is not snotty communication, but it is also, it's like incredibly... I don't, I mean, maybe it's just like a Jewish New Yorker communication. I don't know. I mean, I sort of think of this as like, I can't, I don't have time to like go through the whole pretty whatever. People want to know information. I'm here to give you the information. Like I said, if I can make it a little entertaining, a little funny, a little comprehensible, better than what, you know, is in a large wine tome. That's what I'm here for, right? That's my role. My role is to, to for that. I want to go back to your UK, your UK audience erudite, great, deep questions, really thinking about wine. You may position yourself as wine for normal people, but you aren't just talking to the consumers who don't know a lot about wine. You're not just talking about newbies. You've got an audience, my husband, the fanboy being a great example. You have an audience of incredibly knowledgeable wine drinkers who much of the wine industry does care about, right? Yet they are still seeking 
no bullshit, no hyperbole, honest truths about the wine that they're drinking. If we just are looking at that audience, right? So take your UK um, audience as an example. There's a, I, I, in fairness, what is it? What is it that we're getting US, wrong? Like that's what is what? So what is it? What is it that we as? What is it that someone like me as a wine marketer? I'll put myself on the block for this one. <laughs> what is it that we're doing wrong when we communicate to those people? How can I better communicate to the? enthusiastic, I can't stand that particular language for our personas, but the enthusiastic up to erudite drinker. Okay. First of all, I do want to say that it is not just the UK drinkers, but they're, they're, it's a smaller audience and more discreet. So that's why, because I think if you're looking for a wine pot, if you are, if you care enough about wine to go find a wine podcast, you're already in a different league. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. So already you care more about wine than the average person. Um, and I do want to say that the only reason that I singled out the UK, because I don't want to say anything. I mean, I love my audience. You know, I spend most of my time communicating with my audience. But the reason that I single out the UK is because it's a smaller audience and it's a little more uniform. In the US, I've got newbies. I've got people who've been drinking wine for years. I've got, you know, and everything in between industry people, whatever. So and and they actually the Australia looks a little bit more like the US, frankly. There's more of that broad spectrum. And a little bit in New Zealand, you'd be happy to know. I think there's like four patrons that are from New Zealand. Um, but this is the thing. Uh, those people are not, I mean, I guess that the, the the thing that gets people excited is I don't consider myself a storyteller. Okay. That's not where I go. I don't think that I'm telling you a story. What I'm trying to do is give you a full picture. And I don't think people do that in wine. I think that wine marketing is so self-serving that people think that they are so special. Everyone gets a trophy. Uh, you know, no, right. I'm sorry. So I'm we, sorry we suck at being you customer centric is what you're saying. Yes. I mean, look, look at what you just said. You just said before, and you're 100% right, that some cattle farmer from whatever earned a bazillion dollars and then went and started a winery. You know why I stopped visiting Napa and talking about Napa? Because the story was exactly that. It was exactly the same. Grocery mogul, uh, you know, ran, a, ran an advertising agency, had a great cattle farm, ran a whatever investment bank, was part of Silicon Valley and started a winery. What do I care? The wines taste the same and the people are, uh, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same. What do I care? So then it takes me to other places where perhaps it's more interesting because you have, you mentioned Bill and Betsy from Acorn. You've got, yeah, they were, they were at Bank of America and they did their thing. But Bill, I mean, the guy's a farmer. He's a self-taught farmer. He sells his grapes to other people. He farms his own stuff. He does field blends. All he wants to talk about, he doesn't want to sit there and tell you about his life story and yada, yada. He wants to talk about the soil and the dirt and the slopes and all this kind of stuff. And in the end, it shows in the bottle. And then people care about who made it. This is basic business. The basic business is we, we're getting back to just basic business marketing tenets, which is, you know, you have your four P's. You have, if I can remember them, 
right? There's like four, seven, 11. It depends on who right, you whatever. talk to. But, but you got yes. people, you got place, you got product, right? Product, product always comes before any of that stuff. And so, um, and I can't remember what the fourth P is, but, um, but, but the, the fact is that these, you got to get a good product. You have got to have the people who are going to want that product. And, and then you've got to have it available for people to buy. Okay. So let's, let's talk about, we know that taste is a factor. Taste is a language that has proven very difficult for us. It's difficult across different reviewers, different palates, different cultures, different cuisines. So in 11 plus years of communicating wine, what are your insights on how we use the language of taste better? Oh, I don't have an answer for that. I do not have an answer for that because I really rely on language of place. And this is why there was just an article in Wine Searcher and God, I love Don Cavanaugh. And I think the work that they do at Wine Searcher Editorial is unbelievable. I just want to say that. But occasionally there's some shit that comes out of there. And this one was just like, are you kidding me? I mean, this is occasionally something that people say about the death of the classification system. And this is a brand new thing that happened in 1936. And we should just get rid of it because it doesn't care. Oh my gosh, you might as well just pull the rug out from every single consumer in the world if you do that, who drinks European wine. The whole point of the classification system is to create some standardized system where people know what the hell they're getting. God love that. I can easily convey place to you. And then it's up to you to decide within the spectrum of Sancerre, do you like the ones that are fruitier? Do you like the ones that are grassier? Within the giant confines of Bordeaux, are you right. more attracted to something from Margot or Saint-Estèphe? Thank God for France. Thank God for Italy. Thank God for Spain and the ever-increasing restrictions on Spanish wines and the appellations there. You, you briefly touched on publishing, and sometimes articles are just a little bit too far out there. And this kind of circles back around to the content that you produced. One of the things that we deal with a lot, and I was ranting about it today online, is analytics, engagement, reach, programmatic advertising, digital ad spin, all leading to clickbaity shit, leading to the same <laughs> content over and over and over, leading to, you know, what to have at your Super Bowl picnic party articles in every food and Bev magazine there is. So one, do you pay attention to analytics? Okay. I could not care less. I could not care less. I don't use, I use different metrics, right? The metrics that I use, are, it's like how you gauge success, right? How do you gauge what success? metrics? Well, do everybody you use, has Elizabeth? different I mean, everybody has different things. So on the one hand, you know, if you can't support yourself, why should you have a business? So that's, you know, that's obviously a lot of people's basic MO, but some people just stop there, right? How do I so make financial money? sustainability? Yes. Or Profit. no, it's more than sustainability. Some people want that as the main goal. So I'll give you an example. See, this is like why I'm such a freaking weirdo, right? So... I don't take money from wine brands. I never have, and I never will. 
In fact, most of the time, I won't even take samples from them unless I know that I like their wine because honestly, I don't want to have to take the wine and then have to tell people that I think the wine As sucks. someone who's asked you to take money from wine brands in the past, I can attest that that is 100% true. I do not take money. Uh, I don't take money from, from Appalachians I don't like either, right? So now Appalachians are coming to me and asking me to teach uh, sponsored classes, right? So I teach, the way I make money is by offering education to people. And so I can't afford to offer free classes to my whole audience. So it is wonderful that these Appalachians are allowing me to do that. But I have very strict parameters. You can't control the content. You can't control my presentation. Uh, you know, you're certainly never going to be able to buy space on the podcast, you know, buy my, the, the way that I do that, right? Like sponsored podcasts. I mean, I did it one time. I wouldn't do it again, um, except for my advertisers where that's a separate deal, right? Like we're talking about their product. That's something very different, but I mean, for no, I don't take money for that. And so is money my number one thing? No. Would I take money to be an influencer? No, I get those emails all the time and I hit delete. I'm not interested in that. Also, I say no to most people's PR pitches because I, I, I need to know you if you're going to come on the show. This is a family to me, right? My audience is my family. And um, I get to know these people. I go out and I see them. I, I meet them. I get to know them. I get to know some of their personal struggles. I care. I actually, I know it's weird. I care. So money is one part of it. Yes, I have to have sustainability. But then also, I don't care about the numbers. I care about the engagement. How much do people actually care about what I'm doing? Did they like the podcast this week? Did they think it was a crappy one? Does it? So, I mean, I look at the download and how do you how do you receive that? Do they email you? Is it through Patreon? Is it on social media posts? Where are you garnering? Yeah, Patreon. That? I mean, Patreon is where I trust the most because people are pretty honest with me, and they'll be like, yeah, "Because that was they an pay you effectively, yeah. yes, they contribute, usually, so they feel a right to." They absolutely do, but they also know I am receptive to it. That's the other thing is like, I don't think I know better than them. I happen to have expertise in this field and, and, and it's hard one, right? It's hard one. It's from a lot of study and a lot of research. I'm a researcher, right? Ultimately, like my but, goal is to give people hundred percent accurate information all the time. They know that I have their interest at heart. I'm doing research projects every single week. That's what the podcast is, you know? If if we circle back around, though, you do kind of have a first to market advantage in the sense that you can have this active patron set because you have been around so long. Do you think that someone who was new, who was starting out, who was providing great value and doing the research could tomorrow go into Patreon and launch and have any success with it? Is it a is it a time factor more than value? Or is it first a time factor and then value? You know? If someone came in now to any podcast space, and I don't care if it's wine or anything else, we have a crowded market of people where it's going to be very hard to get in front of people, right? So this is again, this goes back to you have to get in front of people. And it's yeah. very difficult. It's it's just difficult to do. But again, you've got to have all of the right components. I mean, I think it's hard to have. It's so just what does difficult. that look like? What are the guidelines? What are the tips? What are the tips and tricks of the trade that you'd share with someone coming into this space? 
I mean, the only one, do your research. That's what right. you told do me. Your research, do your form research. The market. Right. We talked about this. Do your research, form the market, yada, yada. But the, the bottom line is for a winemaker, we're talking about wine brand. I mean, I'm going to say the same thing I always have said. Find your people and get your wine in front of them and they will buy your wine. You want to see who buys wine? You want to see what goes on? Go hang out in a wine shop for a day if you're a marketer. Go see how people, don't stalk them, but you know, sit down and watch how people buy wine. You'd be floored. You would be floored at A, how much you underestimate what people know, what they don't know, and then just looking at the process of how they buy wine. I mean, if every wine marketer went and spent some time looking at, you're sitting in a, a fairly busy wine shop, looking at how hard some of these wine people, you know, the salespeople, what the kinds of questions they got got were, the wine industry would be, the marketing would be completely different. I mean, it's, and it's, I'm not talking about ride widths where you go with a distributor rep and go, oh, here, buy this bottle. I'm talking about sitting there, you know, with a glass of wine at a, at a place and looking and seeing what people do, because that is, we are so out of touch with that. You know, the reason your clients, Polly, are successful is because you're not giving them bad information. You are not telling them that they should have the world. You're telling them who they should commune with, who they should have a relationship with, how it should work. I mean, removing barriers to success is part of a marketer's job, I think. And part of that is to figure out who is appropriate for the brand and who is not appropriate for the brand. And then focusing in on the people that you want, not the people you don't want. And that creates a more positive thing all around. It might mean cutting your list in half, but it's going to mean raising your sales. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here with me today. I think you're, I think you're awesome. You're one of my very favorite people in wine and I appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you. And you're actually one of my favorite people in wine or out of wine. So I'm going to have to pull that card on you. Our, I mean, our, our big mutual admiration society is complete. That's right. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Uncorked. Thank you for listening and a very special thank you to my friend Elizabeth Schneider for joining us today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. everybody. Italian Wine Podcast celebrates its fourth anniversary this year, and we all love the great content they put out every day. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People has become a big part of our day, and the team in Verona needs to feel our love. Producing the show is not easy, folks. Hurting all those hosts, getting the interviews, dropping the clubhouse recordings, not to mention editing all the material. Let's give them a tangible fan hug with a contribution to all their costs. Head to ItalianWinePodcast.com and click Donate to show your love.